Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Marcus Oki. Marcus is the founder of yourcharismacoach.com and the Conversation Masterclass. He's also the author of the ebook, How to Talk to Anybody Without Fear of Rejection. He's trained thousands of students, business professionals, and celebrities around the world on the art of charisma. Marcus, thank you for coming on the show today. I'm very excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Christopher. So my first question is, how did you get into what you do? Yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, when I was at college, so that sounds like a long time ago now, but time flies. Uh, it was around early 2000s. And there was a guy on my course who just everybody knew. Everybody knew that guy. He was like the, uh, the keystone guy in the whole college. And he was a really cool dude. And I was like, I really love to have those skills that he had. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to ask him what on earth he does. And like, you know, when you meet an expert at something and they find it very difficult to break down what they do because they're just very natural. Yeah, he wasn't really able to, to help. It was the same problem. And I didn't really have the language to kind of break down what he was doing. But I did have some luck on my side. I got a job, uh, like a, a summer job at the same place he was at. So I got to just hang around him lots and lots and lots. And I started to notice that he was really magnetic. So I started to think, right, what is it he's doing? And then I started to try out what it was, like certain things he'd do, the way he'd look people in the eyes, he was talking to them, the way he'd use his voice tonality. And I think like all things, uh, when, you're, when you're learning to improve this area of your life, uh, whether it be for dating or uh, networking or developing your social skills, I think it's a very good idea to try stuff out, see if it works, keep what works and get rid of what doesn't because everybody's a bit different. So that, that journey of um, developing myself, I realized, what is this guy doing? He's being charismatic. So I thought, I'm going to learn this. And then unfortunately, somebody said to me, wow, you should teach it. And I was like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to teach it. And before I could really finish the sentence of saying I didn't want to uh, teach, he said, I've already got you a client. So I was like, ah, oh, damn. So I have to. And, uh, and that was God, 15 years ago now. And uh, we've been going ever since. How did you get into focusing on conversation skills? Because I know that's one of your specialties. Well, you know, conversation skills are an area that I was seeing a lot of my clients uh, having trouble with. So they would have the confidence to walk up and approach somebody and start a conversation, but they find it uh, difficult to navigate the initial phrase of the conversation and really express their personality. Uh, I think one of the worst best pieces of advice out there is just be yourself. And the trouble is with just be yourself is it's given to uh, people when uh, by their friends and family usually, like really well-meaning, like, hey, just be yourself because we think you're cool. And when uh, students were going up to be themselves, they were still worried about how they were coming across and their conversations would falter. So that's why I was interested. What are those magical things that we can say to make the conversation uh, unwind and just unfold in a natural and authentic manner. So that was the area. It was almost like a necessity because once you get good conversation, the rest falls into place anyway. So what are some of the things that you picked up? Well, I realized that a lot of the problems that exist with conversation skills are 
actually something deeper. And that deeper problem is the patterns that exist around us. So what do I mean by that? Well, all of us uh, exist in society, hopefully, unless you're living, uh, listening to this in a cave, but you're probably going to exist in a society where there's certain rules and certain ways of existing and being. And those rules are really useful because they keep everything held together. So what do I mean by that? Like, let's say we meet somebody, we reach out our hands, we're probably going to shake each other's hand. There's an unwritten rule, an unwritten pattern or a system in place to, uh, to do the handshake. What that does is it enables two people who don't know each other to build a quick degree of trust. Not a huge level of trust, but basically to say, hey, I haven't got a weapon in my hand and you haven't got a weapon in your hand either. So there's lots of these little patterns that exist all around us. Anything from saying, hi, how are you, to, uh, to what's up? So all these, uh, all these patterns are great for establishing that initial level of trust, but when the pattern's over, often the conversation starts faltering, and that's when people run into the awkward small talk. So one of the really big things I like to focus on is breaking the patterns, getting out of the boring patterns of everyday conversation as quickly as possible. Uh, and the big reason for that is when we have patterns, they're not very emotive. It's not really emotional. Uh, you're not really going to create strong emotions in somebody by just saying like, how's your day? But if you say, what's the most exciting thing that's happened to you today? What is the coolest thing that's happened to you today? Then you're going to start creating emotion in the other person. And emotion is the secret source that connects people. I mean, you used a couple examples, but what are some great questions that you can ask to break patterns? Okay, well, you know, ask questions that you're genuinely curious about. Ask questions that uh, a nine-year-old would ask another nine-year-old. So, you know, what is the best way to get rid of a dead body? Uh, what would you do with a million dollars right now? Uh, what is the coolest place to go to ever if you could? Now, if we just ask those uh, out the gate, what we may lack is any, you know, we, we may lack context. The other person might look at us confused. We, we have several things we can do at that point. Uh, I noticed a really great trait have, Christopher, and, and I do, uh, I, I use as well, is I say the reason I ask, because it always gives context to what we're saying. You can ask pretty much any question if you end it with the reason I ask. So I like to give context to questions. That way you can ask pretty much anything. But it's also fun just to ask questions randomly and be comfortable with the silence as the other person's working out what the hell is going on. Most of the time, if you've got a smile on your face and you're relaxed and you ask a random question completely out of context, the other person goes through a moment of like, what is this? What's good? And they just see you're relaxed. There's a little switch in their brain that goes, ah, oh, okay, he's just a bit different. And then they open up, and they start talking. And, and that's how you create very interesting conversations. Be the most relaxed person as you're asking the questions you really want to ask. I think this is really great advice. Okay, after you ask a question, what, what's sort of the next step? You just sort of listen? Do you ask additional questions? I think a lot of people get stuck in their head because they're trying to th figure out what they should be asking next. And I think that creates a lot of different types of problems. Well, I've got a confession to make. So I teach conversation skills, but what I really would love to teach is listening skills. Because listening skills are like the yin to the yang of conversation. And it's very difficult to have a conversation with anybody if you've got a conversation going on in your head as well. And I think all of us, at least at some point in our lives, have got a chatterbox, the, the monkey mind, the, 
the part of us that talks to ourselves going, right, okay, what's going on next? Is, is this going well? When that voice is playing, we've now got two conversations going on, and that's usually what causes uh, lots of problems. It definitely affects our ability to listen. So on a deeper level, a really good thing to focus on is quietening that voice. And there's many ways you can quieten the voice. Uh, one way I would suggest is every time the voice starts speaking, just use the voice to say, I love you. Because the voice in the mind is trying to get attention. So if we just say to it, I love you, or more likely, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, then that will eventually silence the voice. Now, you can say it out loud with hilarious effects, but it's good to practice just doing it internally to begin with. So once the voice is quietened, then we can really give our full attention to the other person. Um, I think a great thing to follow up with is always just why? Because when we ask somebody a question, like, you know, where would you, where would you visit if you could visit anywhere? You know, they might say, oh, I'd like to go to the Maldives. That's great, but why? What is it about the Maldives? And then they say, well, I just want to be on a nice sunny beach lazing around. So that's great, but why do you want to be lazing around? Aren't you lazing around enough already? So the, the why is what gets us a bit deeper. Uh, so that's what I'd suggest in a nutshell. Be enthusiastic as the person's opening up to you. The, the big mistake uh, that, I, that, that I see, and I'm sure you see this as well with uh, your clients, is getting stuck in the process of asking a question after a question after a question, making the conversation like an interview. What's happening there is when we ask somebody a question, we're asking them to reveal a bit of their personality. And so as they offer that personality up to us, if we fire in with a question straight away, uh, for example, why, why, why? Uh, what it does is it, it's almost like throwing their answer over our shoulder and wanting more. Now give me more. No, not good enough. Give me more. Not good enough. So a way to break that is to just say a sentence about what they've said before you ask your next question. Uh, and that's a great place, by the way, to reveal your personality. So if they say, I want to go to the Maldives, you might say, yeah, that sounds fantastic. I love sunny weather. Why for you, the Maldives? And then you can get deeper. So that's just my advice in that respect. What are some other keys to great listening? Well, I think you've obviously got like the, uh, the stuff on the surface. So we, we're speaking more about the, uh, the deeper stuff there, but nodding and smiling and being a blank canvas as somebody's talking to you uh, is, is a huge encouraging prompt because it shows enthusiasm. Uh, if you've ever spoken on stage and the front row look miserable, that's always difficult for a speaker. You know, you look out into the audience, Here's your message. And in the front row, you've just got like 15 people with their arms folded, looking like, you know, not very happy to be there. That's always going to be more difficult than if you've got 15 people who are nodding, they're smiling, and they're like the perfect audience. So I think it's great to bear in mind when somebody's talking to you, be a supportive and enthusiastic audience. Now, I don't mean being like a, a children's TV presenter and like nodding your head super enthusiastically, but just smiling, uh, a little nod, and keeping your eyes on that person. Uh, you may have been in a situation where, you know, let's say you're having a conversation in a restaurant and like the cliche thing in the background, somebody drops a load of plates and they all smash. I think it's really great when something distracting like that happens, you still keep your focus on that other person. It's a huge non-verbal compliment. It's very subconscious, but very powerful. So being fixed on that person. Now, if you have problems looking people in the eye, um, if you're listening, 
one of the little tricks you can use is look just between their eyes, at the top of their nose. Uh, practice this with a friend if you like, because when you look at somebody uh, just between their eyebrows, it looks like you're looking at them right in their eyes, but actually uh, you're not. So if you find it difficult to, to make eye contact, that's a good little tip. Uh, it does feel like you're being cross-eyed as you're doing it, but I assure you, you will look normal. What are some other sort of important components to conversation skills? Because we've talked about listening. We've talked a little bit about uh, asking questions. Well, I think uh, questions are great for getting information, but statements are great for expressing your personality. And I think the hallmark of a great conversationist, as well as being a good listener, is somebody who's prepared to go first and make lots of statements and you know lead the conversation. I know when we started our call just before we came on air, uh, we had a great conversation, and you know you you went first. You you know you started chatting, and before we knew it, we're you know we're just engaged in natural conversation. Nobody really remembers the start of a conversation. You know we've all got kind of a goldfish memory in that respect of you know how what did you say to that person? Oh, I don't remember. It just flowed. Usually conversation flows when both people are focused on, as well as listening, really being happy to express themselves. What prevents us from expressing ourselves is the fear of being judged. Uh, the, the fear of what you say isn't gonna be good enough. Uh, I'm a, you know, a conversation trainer, and I've gotta say that in the last 15 years, I've screwed up every conversation I've ever had. Everywhere, in every conversation, I've made a mistake. And I haven't found a way of not making a mistake. But what I have found is the ability just to keep going because nobody remembers the bad bits. I think it's a great point. Let's talk a little about statements. So can you give an example? Somebody's listening to this and they're not quite sure what you mean by statements. Can you give a few examples of that? Sure. Uh, okay, so there's only two things you can do in a conversation, really. You can either ask a question, uh, usually by inflecting the, the tone at the end of the sentence up. So uh, you're having a, go, a great day, right? The, the, the sentence goes up there. There's an upwards inflection. But you can also turn that into a statement by keeping the inflection neutral, you know, having a great day, right? The a statement, what it does is it allows you to share your perspective of reality with another person. So the very best way, I think, to start a conversation, you know, everyone wants to know, what's what's the perfect opening line? Well, a really great one is just to say, you look, and then insert a positive observation. For example, you look like you're having fun there. You look like you're having the best day you could possibly have. You look like you are going to buy the world's best coffee. And I am envious. I also wish to have the world's best coffee. So I haven't asked a question there. I'm expressing my personality, though. Questions are... It's very difficult to express your personality with a question because as soon as you get to the question mark, the end of the question, you're done. But a statement allows you to ramble a bit more and, and sort of show the other person, hey, I can hold this conversation. I'm not going to go straight to questions. Because um, the, 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 secret, the secret within the secret is it's about how we make people feel. Uh, poor conversations are happening when the other person isn't experiencing any emotion from talking to you. So if you want people to experience emotion, you have to go first. If you want somebody to be happy, you've got to be happy. If you want them to be, uh, you know, introspective, hmm, you have to be introspective. So by making statements, we set 
the expectation we want others to follow. And if we set the expectation that, you know, we're happy and we're having good emotions, they're more likely to join us in that because we've taken the risk away. That, that makes a ton of sense. It makes me think of sort of a funny story. When I first started coaching, I was running a workshop. This is almost 10 years ago. And I had a client of mine who said that he was getting a lot of people who were telling him that they felt like they were on an interview when he would talk to them. And so I said, well, start using more statements, mix those in. And then he came back the next week and he said, uh, this girl said I make a lot of assumptions. <laughs> and <Right>. uh, <laughs> it, it turned out that he was actually speaking too fast. We had to slow his speech down to probably about a third of the rate that it was. And, and the reason why he was speaking so fast was because he was worried if he didn't get the words out that the girls would leave, right? They, that his words didn't have enough value. And uh, it just sort of made me think of that story. So I, I'm curious. I, th I think there's a really awesome uh, point. It's like the idea of questions, the idea of uh, using statements and the stuff we talked about listening. I wanted to ask you some more questions about sort of other parts of conversation, but what are some other things that, that you find that maybe are not as easy to sort of identify that make great conversations? Yeah, I see where you go with that. Um, that's a great question. I think for me, the one that comes up immediately is the idea of getting into a state of positive emotion, of heightened emotion, like, hey, I'm I'm going to go and talk to people versus being relaxed. I think a relaxed speaker is always going to have more success than somebody who's really trying to keep their state super uh, upbeat. Because when we have a super upbeat state, it, it does get us positive results uh, because we're setting the expectation that we're happy and, and, and you know, and that, that's very disarming. But unfortunately, it only shows our personality through one lens. When we're relaxed, it gives us so much more time to respond to what the other person's doing. So to tie in to what you were saying about um, the guy who was talking too quickly, I, I think a lot of us can be very afraid of silence because the gaps in the conversation are effectively where we're naked, uh, for want of a better phrase. So that that's... The place where the other person can judge us it's kind of ironic here because here i am yabbering on not leaving any gaps but it's those gaps in natural conversation that um that allow the other person to just kind of make sense of us as, uh, as well so it can be very effective to enjoy your oxygen as you're talking to the other person to get yourself into that relaxed state where you're breathing in through the nose out through the mouth and it's no big deal how the other person responds because sometimes you know you'll um you'll say something and the person might screw up their face because you know they didn't like what you said no problem no reaction needed to that be aware of it but continue with what you were saying take on board that they've maybe got a screwed up face and keep expressing yourself so how how i'd uh, encapsulate that is it's not about their reaction to you. It's about your reaction to their reaction of you. So always choose to respond to their reaction with you uh, of you with a way that makes you happy. So does that make sense? It sounded like a bit of a tongue twister as I was well, saying. Yeah, can you give a specific example? I think that'd be really helpful for the listeners. 
Yeah, that's that's a great idea. Um, you know, I I met uh, a friend at a party, and she actually became a dating coach. This is like, uh, wow, eight years ago. So, I uh, I'm so I met her at this party, and a few a few weeks later, I was walking through uh, Green Park in London, and she was there, and she didn't see me. So I thought it'd be really funny just to walk up behind her and just go boo. So that's what I did. I walked up behind her, jumped out. And as I jumped out, she was really surprised. She dropped her sandwich she was eating. I didn't see she was eating the sandwich. And her sandwich just fell into like three parts in slow motion, you know, like just fell to the ground. And this tiny little piece of chicken rolled out of her sandwich onto the grass. And she looked at me, was like thinking, who is this? And then was like, oh, it's you, Marcus. And she said, yeah, very funny but you've just ruined my lunch. And I could see she was angry. So her reaction to what I did was negative. So I know I've got full control over how I respond. I'm always gonna respond in a way that makes me happy because I'm completely selfish like that. So I said, hey, don't worry, I'm gonna get you a new sandwich. And as I walked to go to the sandwich shop, which was just across the road, I leaned in her ear and said, hey, um, if nobody was about, would you have just secretly picked up that bit of chicken and eaten it anyway? And she said, yeah, I would have done. And her mood completely changed. And that for me was like one of those defining moments where, you know, she didn't remember the start of the conversation where I knocked the sandwich out of her hand. She remembered the laughter, but I could have given up. I could have just thought, oh no, I've blown this. I've screwed up and started panicking and wanted to get out of the conversation. But actually what happened is we became really great friends and a great experience came from it. It makes me think a little bit about connection and because conversation really is about connecting to another human being, right? And I mean, it's through language that we structure our relationships with other people, right? So you have this person who has a different life experience and, and different background and different human being and their own sort of emotional, emotional world. And, uh, and you, and then you have your own, and it's through language that we structure these relationships and, and we connect to each other. And I don't know, I'm curious, what, what do you think are some of the other components? I mean, when, as I'm, you're telling that story, I'm, I'm thinking about, it's just like little laughter, these little jokes that connect this experience, not only this experience connected you to in a certain way, right? Give you a common bond. And, um, and there's just like transfer of emotions. What are some of the other sort of components that make great connection? I, you know, I love how you describe that. I've never heard anyone describe that before. The, you know, structuring our relationships through language. And that's so elegantly said. Uh, how I look at connection, uh, especially through teaching, is I think from my perspective, you've got four key components. Time, space, energy, and matter. So rather handy, uh, rather handy labels. But what do I mean by that? So you have the component of time. Connection happens when you, not when you're together necessarily, but when you're apart. When you leave a conversation and you think, oh, that was a really nice person. That was a nice experience. We, we shared a nice story. And of course, you know, this is something that can be created in the conversation. So let's say you meet somebody, you have a bit of a chat with them. Let's say you're flying out somewhere. You're on a flight from London to, uh, to New York. And you talk to the person next to you and you have maybe a conversation for five minutes as the plane's taking off and then they go through all the, the drills and whatnot. 
Well, that conversation's now stopped, but you can reinitiate the conversation. You say, so tell, tell me a bit more about you. And the conversation starts up again. Now, what the subconscious mind is doing in between the, the time you start the first conversation and second is working out who you are and, and kind of finding out a bit about you on a, on a subconscious level and finding out where to put you. So the more times we see somebody, the more we connect to them. Now, we can also combine this with a space is a great one. If, for example, uh, I see my friend in London and then I bump into him in New York, it's going to create a stronger sense of connection because now we've seen each other in two different locations and at two different times. So the physical space we share with somebody, if we sit next to somebody, it's more easy to start a conversation with that person. Let's say we want to find out the time from them than it is to walk across the plane and find you know, the time from somebody else because they're in our proximity. So we've got time and space as two elements, uh, but we've also got energy and matter. So energy is the emotions we share, the more emotions, happy and sad. So if you remember when I knocked the sandwich out the girl's hand, uh, she was upset. I almost look at emotions like piano keys. The more emotions you share with somebody, the, the stronger your connection. And you know, my closest friends, the ones that have seen me really happy, enthusiastic, they've also seen me sad, they've seen me cry my eyes out, uh, they see me all snot down my face. They've shared all those emotions with me. So the, the more emotions we share, the better. So sharing negative emotions isn't necessarily bad. It's just an extra piano key that's pressed down uh, in the scheme of connection. Uh, lastly, we've got matter. So doing any activity with anybody, moving any, anything around on the planet with somebody, building a sandcastle with somebody, climbing a tree with somebody, uh, setting up a business with someone, Doing anything where you're moving things around is going to create a sense of connection with that person. And so all the uh, all the, the keys of connection, I think, for me, fall within those four uh, broad brackets. And they can all be combined as well. And I think the more of those experiences we share, because what that does is it enables us to, uh, you know, as you were alluding to, to uh, it allows us to create a great story with that person. And the better the story we have, then the stronger the connection. And we were talking about using language to structure uh, relationships, even language sort of to understand and structure ideas. It's a really cool model that you're using. And also notice that when you were describing the story of the girl, you, like it was quite compelling and uh, it sort of pulled me in. I even found, even though I can't see you on, on the other side of the ocean, I found myself leaning in because I found the story interesting, right? It's intriguing in my my body language reacted accordingly. What are the components to telling a great story? Because I feel like storytelling is, I mean, you exemplified it, but storytelling is also a pretty important part of, of great conversations. Yeah, I think stories are really what give things value. They give friendships value, but they also, if we look at products that we like, uh, things that we consume, we usually pick things that have a good story behind them. Uh, celebrities are celebrities because everybody everybody's aware of their story. So the more interesting the story, uh, the more interesting the story you create for yourself and others, the more powerful you become, I think, as an element of, of your world. So uh, in answer to your question, what makes a good storyteller? Uh, first of all, going into the unknown. When, you, when you're writing your story, when you're telling a story, uh, for, for most of it, you're walking backwards into the unknown. You, you can see where you've been, but you can't see where you're going. 
And so very often I'll start telling a story thinking, how on earth does this end? I can't remember, but let's just keep going. So usually having that, uh, that desire just to tell the story and sort the parachute out on the way down after you jumped out of the plane, rather than getting everything in place before you begin is really important. So just launch right in. Why stories work is they allow the listener to experience your perspective of reality through emotions, but also through um, the images you put in their mind, uh, the things that you make them feel. And the best way to do that with anyone is to go first. So as I was telling that story to you about the, the girl whose chicken sandwich I destroyed, I was using my memories. I was going back and imagining I was almost like on a Star Trek holodeck. I was there narrating what was happening as I was replaying it. So I was describing what I could see. But if I wanted to have made that story richer, I could have described what I was also hearing. I could have described, you know, the feeling of my feet in my shoes, my stomach dropping as she looked at me with her face all screwed up. So these are other elements that convey the story. And you notice my, my tonality changed as well. I put on the mask of her anger as I was telling a story. So there are many elements of great storytelling. And I would suggest if you want to get really good at storytelling, a great way uh, to practice, uh, apart from you know telling as many stories as you can, is tell stories to kids. If you can keep their attention and they're really enthusiastic about what you're saying, you know you're doing great because they're a really tough audience. Uh, if you want to practice stories and you, you, know, you don't have kids, uh, well, hey, you're still free. Uh, but if you don't have kids and you want to practice stories, uh, to tie back into conversation skills, the idea of, of going first. So, for example, uh, I was on a subway recently. Uh, sound like Grandpa Simpson. Oh, another time. Uh, but I was on a subway and there was a person in front of me drinking uh, a beer. And I remember saying to him, oh, what beer are you drinking? That was, that was how I started off the conversation. Not my best. And the person said, oh, I'm drinking a, a can of Budweiser. And I was like, great. And then we just descended into silence. And that was awkward. So a few days later, uh, somebody else was drinking uh, a can. There was a lot of alcoholics on the train that day. Uh, but yeah, somebody else was drinking uh, another alcoholic beverage. And instead of just asking them straight out what they were drinking, I told a story about me first. I said, and it was very short, I said, do you know what? It's such a hot day today. I woke up this morning and thought, I'm going to go and get a beer today. And I've been looking forward to it all day. What beer are you drinking? And they gave me a much richer answer. And we ended up in a conversation because I went first and told a little story about me. So getting in the habit of telling little stories is, is a great way to practice. In fact, if you ever spend money with anybody, you've also bought the right to get some free practice as well. So don't when you're buying your groceries, don't go to the automatic teller. Go to the go to the human one and um, and have a conversation with them. You know, if you're. Your groceries cost 50 bucks, get 50 bucks worth of training out of them as well. All right, that's a great suggestion. Any other thoughts, recommendations for people who want to get good at storytelling? Because I feel like this is such an important skill, whether it's whether you're telling a story to connect with a person or you're building a story, as you described with this girl or like with another person, stories are really what in certain ways bond human beings together. Yeah, are any other sort of suggestions, thoughts on ways to get good at storytelling? Yeah, uh, you know, I think 
a real important one is you want to be having more fun telling the story than they are listening to the story. Because if you're going first and having fun, they're going to join you in that anyway. But when you are having fun telling your stories, it's going to come out in your tonality. You're going to speak with a, you know, you're going to talk with a smile. Uh, so that's a key thing. Avoid telling stories to get a reaction. You're telling stories because you're enjoying telling the story. Uh, another little tip that I find quite useful is, you know, sometimes we tell stories and they fall flat. Or sometimes you're in a group of people and they tell a story and it sucks. So how you can re uh, you can salvage any story is add what the moral of the story is. You know, what's the big lesson there? So you could just say, you know, let's say you tell a really boring story like, uh, yeah, I walked out of my house and it was raining and I didn't take an umbrella. And like, that's the story. So the moral of the story is uh, don't leave my house without an umbrella. Uh, unless you are Mary Poppins or Charlie Chaplin, then you'd have one anyway. That'd be really handy. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, adding the moral, like people want to feel they, they've grown from listening to your story. They want, they want to know they've learned something. So if you're stuck, just say, well, lesson learned, practice telling stories. You know, you could even say something like that. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisman.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website, Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I think that there are some people who get scared of telling stories because they think that their stories are not going to be good enough, right? So if somebody's listening to this and they're, they have a hard time telling stories because they're inhibiting themselves because they're worried about rejection. How do you work past that and, and get the storytelling juices going? I guess I don't even know how, how else to describe it. There's lots of little pointers. There's, you know, the pointer of, for example, don't worry about getting all the facts right. I think when we're starting to tell a story, we want to make sure everything's accurate. Like, you know, I walked 400 yards. No, was it 400 yards or, or 500 yards? Like no one cares. So don't let the facts get in the way of the story. Just allow what you're saying just to come out now everything you say you're gonna you're gonna screw it up to some degree it's okay what you're doing by even starting the story is you're giving a gift to the other person because that other person doesn't have to do anything in the conversation right now all they have to do is sit back and listen so i appreciate that as soon as you're telling a story you're giving somebody some free theater you're giving them the chance just to relax and you're showing that you can hold the conversation. 
So I think it's very important that we always pat our own back for actually having a go. Uh, so often we're looking to how people are reacting to it, to us and what we're saying, when actually the the act of actually doing it is the win. You know, you've already won as soon as you started. It can really help to have a prompt as you start talking. And, you know, many of us have grown up with that prompt in the Western world anyway, of once upon a time. You know, as soon as you hear once upon a time, something happens in the mind where we start to relax a little bit. Oh, someone's going to tell a story. This would be good. So have fun with that. You know, say once upon a time and see what comes out your mouth. Even if it's once upon a time, somebody went to tell a story and screwed it up. Oh, that's me. You know, that's fine. Be having more fun than they're having. You'll always be forgiven if you're having fun. Uh, I think as well, the the idea of rejection. This is this is a big thing. Um, there is, for as long as I can remember, the the challenge of how do we get over rejection, and the problem exists is whilst the idea of rejection does exist, you can never get over it. It's kind of like a paradox. What do I mean by that? Well, we know what the opposite of rejection is. It's acceptance and validation and the feeling like, yay, winning. And we know rejection is, that didn't go well at all. Uh, I personally think there's only maybe three or four different bad reactions a person can give us. One of them being uh, the face of disgust. You know, where they, they screw their face up and ugh, as if you came up to me, you know, that kind of face. Um, while we're looking for to, to try and get the validation and avoid the rejection, we're in the great game of avoiding rejection. So we can't beat the game while we're playing that game. So my way to defeat rejection is to not play the rejection game at all. How do we do this? Well. Instead of thinking every conversation we're going to have can go really well or really bad, change the labels. Why not have every conversation or every story we tell? This story is either going to go fantastic or it's going to be really funny, especially for me. If those are the two expectations I've got when I start the story and I'm looking for them, I'll find evidence for them. If I'm looking for this is going to go really well or it's going to suck, I'm going to get one of those responses. So why not be kind to myself? Why not just change one of those responses to it's going to go great or it's going to be funny. And so when we do that, we start to develop either one of those two responses. And in doing so, our confidence grows because we're always getting positive feedback and our storytelling will improve as well. In fact, you can pretty much apply that to most areas of your life. The key, I'll just throw this in quick, is how do we stop becoming delusional though? What if we just keep thinking I'm amazing, I'm wonderful, and everyone's hating us? Like this guy's got the worst breath ever and his stories are awful. Well, it's always good to think, what could I have done better next time when we're being reflective after the moment? And that keeps us on track. One of the things that you, you, I've noticed or picked up is you've talked a lot about emotions and positivity and, and having fun. Why is positive emotions so important to being a good conversationalist? Well, positive emotions and actually negative emotions as well. Positive emotions are very addictive. Negative emotions are more powerful in the sense that many of us move through life in a very negative headspace. Imagine if we're always drinking Coca-Cola every day. Suddenly, you, you know, you get bored of it eventually. So suddenly when positive emotion comes in, 
it's very uh, invigorating to feel those emotions, it, it, you know, to have permission to feel really great about ourselves. We look at the cultural world we're in, you know, we're surrounded by advertising telling us we're not good enough, which, uh, you know, the desire to fit in, the desire to be judged positively. It's all, you know, quite draining. So when somebody comes along and they're just coming from a place of giving and they're giving good things out, it, it's a nice change. Now, as a conversationalist, I think it's really great that, you know, the first step is to focus on injecting people with positive emotions by being positive yourself. The second step is to be uh, skilled in taking negative emotions when they come up and turning them, turning them into something either like a learning experience, a growth experience, or turning them on their head and making them positive. So negative emotions have a place in stories as well and have a place in uh, our connections. You know, I, I'm sure there's people in your life who are very dear to you that have pissed you off at some point in your life. Uh, that's part of the narrative. So it's, it's important to, you know, step into this space where you're experiencing positive emotions. But it's also important to know that, you know, to appreciate that negative emotions aren't a terrible thing in the scheme of things it, it's more about using both of those tools uh to your advantage what are some of the ways that you check in with somebody when you're in a conversation with them uh, a good one i use is I, I say things like um does that make sense and you know i'll wait for the other person to go yeah or i'll ask them a, a question like i you know that's important to the story so for example i was watching tv the other night and uh, oh, there was that Who's that that rapper from New York? Uh, what's his name? Uh, he's got a famous wife. And then I'll make them kind of complicit in trying to tell the story. They're like, oh, it's that guy. I, I am terrible with celebrities, by the way. So I'm like, who is that person? Right. So, uh, you know, oh, what was the what was the guy who got married? The royal family he got married. Oh. And, you know, someone go, oh, Prince Harry. I'm like, yeah, that's it. So I'll use uh, I'll invite them to contribute little, little, uh, little uh, parts of the story, uh, parts of the conversation. Um, I'll also do little small things uh, like I'll just lead them gently and see if they respond. And, you know, they might just be, oh, just, just stand there a sec, just to see if they just move a little bit, just so there's a bit of backwards, forwards, um, you know, an exchange of ideas or exchange of compliance on both parts. So what, what I mean by that, is talking is one aspect of communication, but there's also the, you know, as you were describing, body language. There's also uh, enthusiasm, enthusiasm, the emotions and whatnot. So I'm gonna be thinking about things I can do that affect time, space, energy, and matter. I might say, oh, could you just grab that door for me? And, you know, I'll respond and I'll open the door for somebody else as well uh, and create that sense of reciprocation. So uh, in answer to your question, I think it's a case of just checking in with them either asking them uh, questions, little, little, little easy, giving them easy wins. Uh, if they're not responding, so you say, well, you know, what was the name of that, that, that famous guy who killed that guy? Um, and they're like, you know, they're just looking at you plain faced. You know, challenge them a bit. Yeah, come on, you remember. And if they're still, uh, you know, still looking at you like really glazed over, say, okay, I, I'm not doing very well. Your turn to speak. Like I'll get them to put some of the effort in because you've got to build it together, the connection. It's such a great way to get people to invest. Yeah, invest. That's the great word, invest. That sort of leads me to another question that I think comes up 
I mean, I think it comes up a lot. I know it comes up in my classes. I'm sure it comes up with your clients. When you get an awkward silence or an awkward pause, what do you do? Oh, well, you know, my answer to this question has changed over the years. So nowadays, I just sit in it because I enjoy it. But that's not as helpful. That would that advice wouldn't be as helpful for me starting out. So generally, if there's an awkward silence, who's it awkward for? It's going to be awkward possibly for the other person. It will definitely be awkward for the other person if it's awkward for you. The thing that makes it awkward for you or me or anyone is if we're worrying about being judged. So a really good thing to play with to getting to that point where you really do enjoy those silences is to just take a breath. Just breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, and smile at the other person. And relax. Use it as a meditation. The chances are you're probably talking too quickly anyway. And that little pause encourages the other person to start investing again. Uh, another thing you can do if you want to have a bit more fun is just talk about it. So, uh-oh, the dreaded awkward silence. Every time there is a silence, fairy will die. Or something like that, you know? Like, use that as the thing to talk about. And it's a cool trick, right? Because one of the things I noticed that you, you're doing is you're quite aware, right? And I think that's a really interesting skill, right? We do this this exercise sometimes in our classes. It was originally developed by this acting teacher, and it's called a repetition exercise. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, no, I haven't. So you just, there's somebody across from you, and you say, like, you're wearing a red shirt, and they say, I'm wearing a red shirt. You say, uh, yeah, you're wearing a red shirt, and you say, I'm wearing a red shirt. You just repeat it over and over and over. And the idea is to get for the person to get out of their head and then the next step in that progression is uh, you might name some type of change in behavior, right? So you do the first one several times, and then you might shift to like, you start with the red shirt, and then you, the person uh, starts to smile, and you go, you're smiling, I'm smiling, you're smiling, I'm smiling, you're smiling, I'm smiling. And then the next shift after that is to emotionally naming something. You're feeling happy, or you're feeling relaxed, or you're feeling nervous, right? So... Uh, the person always agrees because it's not really about whether it's necessarily right or wrong. It's about sort of getting out of your head, which being self-conscious for actors is really common. And uh, it's also very common for conversationalists. So, uh, but one of the things that I noticed that you're, you do really well is, is you're good at naming sort of the emotion or the thing. And so I think for a lot of people, they might be aware that there is an awkward silence, but they might have a hard time naming it. And I think that there's a power in being able to sort of sense something, observe it, and articulate it. Yeah, very much. Uh, the elephant in the room. you know. And I think the first step for that for me was getting used to talking about the emotions in myself. So if I'm running out of breath or my tummy feels funny, talk about that. It kind of become like Ralph Wiggum, like my tummy hurts or you know whatever. But it gives somebody something to talk about. And you're being vulnerable by doing that. There, there needs to be a vulnerability for the connection to, to spark. And uh, again, we live in a world where no one wants to be vulnerable. So by, by going first, you're actually being very strong by being vulnerable. It's kind of like a knight going into battle with no armor. You know, he's, hey, I don't need it. I'm vulnerable. You know, and yeah, you can get hurt, but also you grow really quickly by doing that. Um, you know, you were, you were saying to me 
that you know that story i was thinking wow you know two people just facing each other like i have a red shirt on i have a red shirt on. it's like i was like thinking, wow I, what if they just both had stammers and they were just oh my god that'd be awkward wouldn't it maybe they would be the best in the class <laughs> so I, maybe that's not politically correct but anyway uh, i love the idea of what if you know, I'm always thinking, oh, what if they both had stammers and they were doing it? Uh, you know, what if, um, what if that's the only thing they could say? What if they kept saying that after they left the class? So a game I play with myself is what if, what if, what if? And I start sharing some of those what ifs sometimes. I think it's a great suggestion. It makes me think of two places I've heard that one is there's a acting teacher. Her name is Stella Adler, who used to teach in New York. She's passed away several years ago, but she used to use this idea as imaginary circumstances. And I think some of the improv schools in New York City use something similar. Um, can you talk more about sort of how what if plays into your communication teaching? Because I think that's a, a really interesting direction to go. Um, yeah, of course. So I think why have one possibility? You know, why, why have a conversation where, you know, you know what's going to happen before it's happened. So the typical example, you're buying your groceries and you say hi to the person who's selling you it. You know what the conversation is going to do before it's begun. In fact, most people don't even have the conversation because it's so boring. But what if you made a little gun, you know, the shape of a gun with your hand. And you said, this is a robbery. Now, okay, I know you probably get shot in America. But in England, they'd find it hilarious. Um, now, you know, what if, what if you did that though? What if you said it's a double robbery and you had two guns? What if you picked up a banana and that was a gun? And what if you weren't about guns at all? What if you just said, I'm stealing this unless you tell me a joke and it's funny? The, the other person's going to get to a point of, oh shit, what's going to happen next? And that's your gift to them, that spontaneity. So playing that what if game in your mind and, and just being brave and trying it out. What if instead of walking down the stairs, you slid on the stair rail instead, you, you just slid down. What if you, instead of using the escalator, you know, to go up, what if you ran down the up escalator? What if you uh, went, the next person uh, who served you coffee and said, sorry, I just, just felt like doing that. What if you tried those things? So it becomes a game you play with yourself until you get so fed up playing it with yourself that you, just go and try it, but start small. You can start small and just say, what if I let this person go first in front of me? What if I didn't get pissed off when the person in front of me, was, as I was driving, cut in front? What if I just waved at them instead? What if I waved at the next person at the stoplight? And then when you feel naughty, just go and do it. Being naughty is great. That's what allows what if. It doesn't constrain you to a set experience of I must behave in a certain way. Uh, there was a you know, because we're talking about acting uh, just now. And there was a, I think it was a New York teacher called Meisner. Yeah, Meisner, Meisner was the person who developed the repetition exercise I mentioned earlier. Yeah, so he was really, um, oh, I've lost my train of thought now. Hang on. Um, now, what was I going to do with the Meisner? Damn, it's completely escaped my mind. This is, this is the negative side of being present. Yeah, I'm sure it will pop in your mind at, at any point, feel free to interject. One of the things that I really like about what you're saying, Marcus, is this like what if provides endless opportunities for not only your conversation to move in different directions, but your life to move in different directions. Because I think as human beings, we have a tendency to fall within a 
like a box, right? Like sometimes we'll do these exercises in our classes where we'll mirror people and people can recognize themselves by the mannerisms that somebody is mirroring back them. They're like, oh my God, that's me. I do that with my face. Or I do that with my arms. They might not be aware of that on their own, but when they see somebody else do it, like they can recognize themselves. They do the same thing with words and speech patterns. Uh, earlier you said, does that make sense? And I get teased for that all the time because I actually use that phrase when I'm coaching constantly. And it's so, it's great to hear somebody else say that because I, as a coach, I had to develop this strategy for checking in and figuring out is what I'm trying to communicate sinking in and to what degree, right? And does that make sense? And the feedback that comes with it is a way that I do that. But I, I really do like this idea that what if provides this endless sort of set of potential for opportunities for both your life or your conversations or your day or whatever to, to move into. I think it's a really cool sort of Jedi mind trick you can play on yourself. Because you are, you know, the, the, the joke is the game's on you, you know. Uh, you reminded me as well about the Meisner thing. Uh, to tie into what you were saying, it's just about sharing your truth. So if your truth is I'm bored, just go, hey, I'm bored. See what the other person does with it. They might not do anything. Uh, unfortunately, most of us now, if we're over the age of 18, and, you know, for the rest of our lives, we get stuck playing a game called politeness. And I really hate politeness, but I really like the idea of having good manners. And this is where I, I believe it was Meisner was quite a champion of this, where, you know, what's the difference between politeness and manners? From my perspective, politeness is following all the unwritten rules of society, whilst manners is being present to somebody. So pulling out a chair because somebody's sitting down because you're present with them and you see they're about to sit down, not doing it because you're polite. So politeness is don't walk on the grass because there's a sign that says keep off the grass. But naughty people do walk on the grass. You know, they're naughty. They're bad boys. So I think it's great to screw politeness and be present with somebody. Create a scene with them. You know, uh, I walked into, I do a lot of gas stations, it seems, but I, there's a gas station where I'm living. So I was, I was buying some uh, some chocolate yesterday. and I walked up to the guy and was just like, I had a boring conversation. I said, hi, how's your day? Good, he said. How was your day, he said. Good, I replied. And that was our conversation. And that was the point where in my old life, that's where I'd stopped. But this time I said, uh, what's the most exciting thing that's happened to you today? He said, this conversation. And I was like, what? We've just started talking and this is, this is the most exciting thing? I said, you know, I... I was going to rob this place, but I think that's too much excitement for you. He said, oh, mate, because my old place, we used to get robbed all the time. It doesn't scare me anymore. I said, well, if it doesn't scare you, I'm glad I didn't. I, maybe I'll rob it tomorrow and I'll pick on that guy instead. And that was a completely different conversation for me or him. I never had that conversation before. He'd never had that conversation before. But now when I go into that place, he recognizes me. Now we have a human connection because emotions have been triggered. He had a story that was not just some person coming up and buying a bar of chocolate and walking out. It was suddenly different. It was breaking his own patterns by breaking my own. That's awesome. I think that's a great example. One thing I did want to say really quick, just for context, is we've, we've both used acting teachers as a couple of examples. And I think some people who are listening to this might think, well, acting, I, I don't want to, I don't want to act when I'm in conversations or whatever, because 
Uh, I don't feel present or it's incongruent. But one of the reasons acting teachers do a lot of these exercises, and I pulled some of them into our classes, is because bad actors respond to like themselves and the audience. Good actors respond to the person they're interacting with. And in order to do that, you have to be completely present. And uh, I just wanted to make that a point because I don't want people to get confused. Like they'll go home and they'll think, well, acting, I'll just like memorize tons of lines and go out and <laughs> say all these lines. And, and, uh, but there, there are oftentimes people do that and they're reacting to themselves and they never really connect because they're not present. So I just wanted to sort of clarify that. I mean, the big secret is they're not really acting teachers, they're meditation teachers. It's an interesting way to think about it. I, I mean, when I hear that, I think of like the idea of, of being present. Is that what you're thinking or do you have another, are you coming from a different angle? No, no, I was, I was coming from that angle. You know, I, I, I haven't done acting classes, uh, but I have focused on being present. And by being present, I mean, there's nothing in the future, there's nothing in the past. I'm right here, right now. You know, all happiness exists in the present moment. All sadness exists in the past. And all fear is stuff that hasn't even happened yet. But fear can't exist in the present because it's not fear anymore. It's just the situation, the scene you're in. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, actor in New York, uh, also now uh, a coach, John Keegan, said to me a really great insight once. He said, uh, words to the, effect, the story was roughly, he was, he was working on a scene in an acting class. And, you know, as I understand, he was practicing this scene with this famous acting teacher for like week after week after week, you know, just doing the same lines. And eventually he's on the stage. He turns to the acting teacher. He's like, this scene is such a struggle, man. And the acting teacher, almost like so cool, like smoking a cigarette, said, dude, the struggle is the scene. And for me... The catastrophe, the glorious catastrophe of the conversation going wrong is the scene, is the beautiful moment, is the thing that makes it interesting. It's not about seeing a beautiful girl take out a cigarette and leaning over so smoothly and lighting her cigarette and going, oh, lovely party. Well, you know, that's there's no struggle there. The resistance and you are overcoming the resistance is what creates the beautiful friction in the moment and the, the authenticity that lines just don't create. Friction is a great word to use. That was sort of what I was thinking uh, as you were describing that. But our lives need friction, right? And so so often we're trying to get rid of friction and, and sort of erase it or, or prevent it before it happens. But every story has friction, right? Every relationship has friction. Every conversation to a certain extent has some friction. It's just so much of what it means to be human. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree, right? It's so many of us trying to avoid the friction when the friction is what shapes us. That's great. I, I'm really enjoying this. We're sort of getting towards the end of uh, time. What, what other suggestions do you have? Uh, somebody wants to be a great conversationalist right now. They feel like they're awkward or inhibited or ha have trouble sort of getting out there and being themselves and connecting with people. Any other sort of last suggestions? Well, you know, there's a phrase that always uh, I've always kind of leant back on, and it's, uh, I do today what others won't, so I can do tomorrow what others can't. And for me, how I would apply that is one simple exercise. The exercise is this. Every day, 30 days, and longer if you like, aim to have one 
60-second conversation with a stranger. The only goal is just to stay in the conversation 60 seconds. That's it. You might get to 60 seconds, you might get to 30 seconds, you might go on to five minutes. But that's the challenge. Your conversations can suck. It's okay. Realise that the, the stepping up and taking action is the difference that makes the difference. So the more of these experiences you get under your belt, the wiser you become, the more reference experiences you get. Every time you get a reference experience from talking to a new person, pat yourself on the back, you did a good job, but ask yourself, if I could do that again, what would I do differently next time? And that's how you start teaching yourself. There's gonna be people around you who do things a lot better than you do. And that never stops, but be grateful for that because they're your teachers and potentially everyone is your teacher. The thing I'm always looking for is if anybody says anything to me or I overhear it in a conversation and it makes me feel an emotion, it means that conversation is authentic. It's made me feel an emotion, it's woke me up. I will always see if I can work out what it is they did and then I'll go and try it out myself. So if somebody shakes my hand in a funny way and waggles it left and right instead of up and down, and it made me laugh, well, guess what? I've now got one of the secret puzzle pieces because if you can make people feel emotions, you're different from everyone else. So every time somebody makes you feel an emotion, they're giving you a golden nugget. To cement it in your mind, try it out straight away. Don't think, right, I'm gonna remember that. Put it into action. Some of it will work for you and some of it won't. Get rid of what doesn't work, keep what does. Your personality is completely unique to you. And when I first started out in this area, I hated the idea of fake it till you make it. The concept of trying out stuff that's not you. But I would encourage you to try stuff out that's not you. Because what you're doing right now is only gonna give you a limited experience. When you go and do something that's completely random, let's say you always have nice hair, so you just go and bleach it platinum blonde, or you decide to roll around in the mud because you've never done that before, that's great. This is completely raw data that your mind can use and reform your personality and, and develop your skill of connecting with people. So there is only one you, and other people are able to do things that express the real you through them. So copy them, try it out, and if it doesn't work, get rid of it. It's all good. Uh, that's my advice in a nutshell. Actually, I have a couple more questions because I was just sort of thinking and I feel like I should, should get into them. One is you've, you've mentioned authenticity several times around this podcast. Can you describe what it means to you and sort of how somebody can take that and harness it and, and utilize it in their life? Well, that's, that's a really uh, deep question. I've never been asked that before, but the answer that comes to my mind is be present. So authenticity is be yourself, is I feel happy, that's what you talk about. I feel sad, that's what I talk about. So in other words, avoid censoring yourself. I think it was a guy called Keith Johnson said, there is a guardian at the gates of the mind who kind of filters everything we say. When you can switch that guy off, be, you know, and allow what you feel to come from a place of expression rather than impression, in other words, shining bright rather than trying to get a reaction out of other people you're really close i think the icing on the cake is when you see how they respond 
and from a place of compassion, uh, you know, adapt and steer the scene that you're creating with them, the, the moment you're creating with them. So what, what I mean by that is, is, let's say I feel really happy and I'm like, hey, have a great day, how are you doing? And the other person's looking really down and sad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be aware of that and I'm going to be compassionate and say, oh, you're having a bad day. What's going on? So it's authenticity for me is about being present. In other words, the mind is not chattering. I'm focusing on what I can hear. I'm focusing on what my body can feel. I'm focusing on the smells in the room or the, or the, or the place I'm in. And I'm focusing on what I can see. Stimulation and information from all those senses is more than enough for my brain to be processing. Right? You know, the, the voice doesn't need to be in there as well. And if the voice does pop up, I'm going to say, I love you to it. There's another comment that you, you made that I kind of want to get into. And you were talking a little bit about um, going out and listening to what other people do or say and observing, seeing what people are doing and sort of taking some of that. And, and we do this in lots of different places in our life. Um, I, I think about in my own life, when I was like trying to learn to dance as like a young guy, I would see people dance and every time I would go out, I would try to like steal a move from like one of the best people in the dance club or whatever. And later on, like I started to draw and I learned about the idea of an art of drawing from reference. And so you look at your drawing will get a lot better if you have something to refer to because it's hard to remember all the specific details that an object might have. But when you're looking at it, you can capture those details. What I found is with dancing is as I took these things, it sort of increased my dancing vocabulary. As, as I started learning to draw from reference, it allowed me to draw um, with a bigger vocabulary. I started started to study music a few years ago and I started learning different types of music. It increased my vocabulary. So so we do this all the time in our lives. And uh, we, we do it from the time we're essentially born all the way through I mean, the course of our whole life, in my opinion. But I think that when it comes to communication skills, people start become self-conscious. They get worried at a certain age about trying on new things, right? And I'm curious, why do you think that is? And uh, what, what can somebody do if they find that they're inhibited because they're trying to expand themselves and they find that they're dealing with either internal or external pressures or conflict? Great point. You know, my own perspective is that most people, when they get to the age of, I don't know, 30, 35, they just stop growing and then they're like that forever. And it's very hard, I think, for as, as we get older to, to, to change because growth is uncomfortable. Uh, so I think our, that doesn't mean, by the way, if you're over the age of 30 or 35, you can't change. You can. But it just seems through a general population, most people have cemented their identity of who they are and they're very protective of it because they put a lot of work into this, this identity. They don't realize how fragile it is, sadly. So I think the first step is just being aware and it's being aware of, do I want to change? If you do want to change, the second step is realizing it might be uncomfortable. It's going to, you know, it's, when we, let's say we train to get stronger, um, we're doing pull-ups or something like that. It's, it's not comfortable. It's not painful, but it's not, it's not leisure. You know, it takes a bit of effort. So I think it's very important to have a clear idea of what you want to transform yourself into. What does the, the ideal you look like? What does your future self one year from now 
look like? I mean, if you could imagine that person in front of you, you know, looking at you, say you're standing up and that person is in front of you, uh, what have they achieved? How are they standing? You know, what clothes are they wearing? And really turn up the volume on it, go to town on it, really think, what does this person look like a year from now? You know, what do I look like a year from now? What is my future self looking like? Uh, that person, if you have a clear idea, you're more likely to become them because now you've got a signpost, something to work towards. Uh, if you imagine, just to switch gears quick, if you imagine a, a, a room, there's, let's say uh, we hide $5 in the room, we turn the lights out, we could keep looking in the room, like, is, is the $5 here? No. Is the $5 here? No. Is the $5 here? No. And you're looking around the room for these five bucks. But if somebody says, you know, go in that direction, you're much more likely to find what it is you're after. So having that compass of who you want to be in a year's time is, is great, is hugely important. The next step is realize, uh, realizing that every time with that intention in your mind that you take action towards that goal. So let's say you want to become a great conversationist and you see, you visualize or you feel what that looks like. Every time you then take action, you've got a reason for taking action. If I'm just talking to people because I'm talking to people, it's very hit and miss. But if I have a very firm idea, like I'm getting better and better and better, then you'll start moving towards it. Every time you take action, you get a bit of evidence. So what, what I mean by that is if I want to be an amazing conversationalist, I go and talk to somebody, no matter how it goes, I now have real world evidence that I can either use to congratulate myself and say, yes, I did it. I got better. Or I can use that as this is more reasons why I suck. And there are two types of student I've learned. There's a type of student who will always find what they did wrong. They come away from a conversation just shaking their head like, oh. And then there's the kind of student who will always focus on what they did right. Every time you focus on what you did right, you change your belief system, you change how you're moving through life, and you take one step closer to that ideal you. So I guess what I'm saying here is have a very clear idea of who you want to become. Every time you do a pull-up, if you want to be, uh, you know, look like Rocky, you're one step closer. But that evidence is up to you to use in a positive way. You can use that evidence to really punish yourself as well. You can use, you can say, ah, this isn't, you know, I'm doing this training to prove it doesn't work. You know, there's people like that that come on trainings just to prove it doesn't work. And they get that result. And there's people that come and prove it does work. And they get that result. So it all starts at the level of intention. Marcus, this is awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, it's been a total pleasure. If somebody wants to find out more about you, how do they do that? Oh, uh, very kind, Christopher, and I've really enjoyed uh, our time together. It's, it's been really enjoyable. Uh, well, my website is yourcharismacoach.com, and there is a free ebook on there all about conversation skills, all the stuff I wish I'd learned when I started out. So uh, you can go and get your free conversation skills book at yourcharismacoach.com. And uh, yeah, there's videos up there and loads of cool stuff. So we'd love to see you. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. 
Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.